the middle of football season, and you, if you've ever followed football, you know this quote, offense sells tickets, but defenses win championships. Bear Bryant said that uh, about having a good defense. Uh, I looked it up this week just to make sure Bear Bryant wasn't ro- was right, and he was, well, right half the time because there was this uh, website where it's very detailed statistics on is it the offenses or defenses in the championship teams, and it's pretty much a coin toss. Uh, but a good defense is good for any team, uh, whatever your sport, and we too as believers need a good defense. And you're thinking, well, this is not a sport. No, it's not a sport. Not athletically do we need a good defense, but spiritually we need a good defense. Uh, we are here walking through the book of Acts. You see up there, travels into the remote nations of the world in four parts. And for us, we've broken down the last part of the book of Acts. Paul's travels into four parts. And we find ourselves where Paul is on trial and in prison. And Paul is defending the faith to those who would bring accusations against him. As Bradley read earlier, uh, when he read in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a, and there's that word, defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If you look at that verse, basically we need to have a personal walk, a personal devotion to Jesus. Set in your hearts, uh, Christ the Lord is holy. And so our being, after being personally devoted, we must, we must, it's a must. It is not a, uh, it's, an, it's not an option like, you know, I'm really good at setting up chairs, but I'm not going to be able to give my defense this week for the gospel. No, we must be in the public defending of the faith. We must be ready uh, and we must be respectful. We must be ready with what we're going to say and we must be respectful uh, how we're going to say it. And this verse, among un- others, in the Bible show us that apologetics, that is the study, it's the defense of the faith, is a must. It literally broken down, apologia, that means to speak away. Away is apo, logia is to speak or knowledge. And so you speak away knowledge. It was used in Greek culture in the courtrooms, and you still see that today. A defense attorney will get up and try to speak away the case against. And so we are to defend some even have taken the word apologetics and, and tried to use it for, there's atheist apologetics, Catholic apologetics, but the, the term has been pretty much used throughout history for those who are defending Christianity in the public square. And there are different types of apologetics. Uh, the, the first and foremost was the one to prove. You see that in Acts 9.22. It's not up there, but know that it's there, that Christianity is reasonable. And so you're going to prove the faith. This is often called classical apologetics. And then there's all the texts like the one I just read in 1 Peter 3. You'll see one today in Acts 24 to defend. This is the evidential that Christianity is not unreasonable. Uh, and then after that is to refute. You see that in Titus 1.9 that if you're going to, it's a noble thing, Timothy says in 1 Timothy 3 to be an elder. But if you're going to be an elder, it gives you these characteristics. And then the things you are to do is you're to be able to teach and refute those who contradict. And so that non-Christian thought is unreasonable. And this is all under this idea of apologetics. Some call that presuppositional apologetics. 
And then you have the, to persuade that Christianity is not just uh, understood by reason alone. And so there has to be a personal faith. And if I were to walk through this, there's a book out. It's a wonderful book called Faith Has Its Reasons. And it just walks through all four of those um, ideas of apologetics. Maybe you've heard of these um, authors or these theologians in your life. B.B. Warfield, C.S. Lewis, Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig. Those are the classical apologetics. Joseph Butler, James Orr, Clark Pinnock. Those are your evidential apologists. Uh, John Calvin, Cornelius Van Til, Alvin Plantinga. Those are your presuppositionalists. And Bla- Martin Luther, Blaise Pascal, uh, Karl Barth. Those are your, this last one, to persuade the personal apologetics. All of those men and women would go out and publicly defend the faith. And so today, you're going to see that. And my appeal is today is that we have a joyful apologetic, that the world is going to bring accusations, and that the Christian apologetic, we need to speak. It's not just living your life. Uh, someone, people often quote St. Francis of Assisi. I share, uh, I, I share the gospel all the time, and sometimes I use words. That's just wrong. Yes, you are to have good works, but this idea that the gospel is communicated uh, just by the way you live, that is not right. We must speak it with our mouth. This is the good news to be declared. And so when we talk about the Christian apologetic, there are basically two things. Uh, In this passage, there are more, but basically you're talking about a historical event of something that happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how that death and resurrection has affected your life. That is what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 24. If you haven't already turned there, turn with me to Acts 24, and we're just going to walk through the entire chapter, making comment as we go. And I hope at the end of the day, you see this. As the world accuses God's people, they respond with a joyful, a joyful, that's right, joyful apologetic. I get that straight from the text. I'm not making it up. It's all in there. Verse 1 of chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, you're maybe wondering, where does Luke get all this information? In studying this passage, reading the commentaries, you see that back in the day, much like we have today, people had access to public records. And so Luke probably had access to the notes of the trial. Obviously, Luke had access to Paul. And so here he is giving you a recount of what happened to Paul this day. In verse 2, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in everywhere and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. This was often done in the rhetoric of the day. Um, it's, it's just the official buttering up of the person you're talking to. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. And here's what He says of Paul, For we have found this man, one, a plague, two, one who stirs up strife among all the Jews throughout the world, and three, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried, number four, to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, if you're reading through your Bible, if you have an ESV, you're reading through this, you're sticking with me, and you see it goes from six to eight. And then you see this footnote down here, 
of a of a lost verse. Uh-oh. If you're reading through the New American Standard, you have this verse, but it's in brackets. If you're reading through the New International Version, it comes at the end of 6 and then it says 7 with a little a in it. You just go to a margin note. And so I'm having to do some apologetics for the text here. You're like, why does it go from 6 to 8? Well, let me introduce you to the fascinating world of textual criticism. If you're ever here and you're saying to me, Pastor Jed, I just can't sleep at night. I have a solution for you. You do not need to take any medications. You just come to my house. I'll give you a book on textual criticism. I assure you, trust me on this, you will be asleep. It is a field of study. It is very important. It is not the most glamorous thing. They don't have conferences. Like they have conferences, the Shepherds Conference, and, and you go to see these great preachers of God, and you're like, I want to go to see Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Mola, Stephen Lawson. Uh, C.J. Mahaney was year, there the year I went there, and you're like, I want to go hear about this, how to be a better pastor. Together for the Gospel, they have these conferences that you can go to. The Passion Conference often woos in the college crowd to hear from John Piper, Louis Giglio, about the glory of God and how you can live it out even at college. I've never been doing this almost 20 years. Just seen a conference. Come to the conference on textual criticism. Nobody goes. But it's here. We have to deal with it, right? We're talking about defending the faith. And so the idea is if you see in the New American Standard, it basically says early manuscripts don't contain uh, what some of these uh, later manuscripts have. And so if you do a study, let me give it to you in about 30 seconds. People tend to go with, these guys who are translators of the Bible, go with earlier manuscripts because they're closer to the original documents and there's less room for uh, change to happen over time. But there are later manuscripts. My Bible says, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of their hands and then the beginning of eight, commanding his accusers to come before you. And so what they've just said, and this is what makes Christianity wonderful, is even when we have a troubled text, we don't try to hide it. Uh, If you go to the end of John 7 into John 8, it's in brackets. You go to the end of, uh, of Mark 16, 9 through 20, it's in brackets. We're saying, hey, we're not real sure about these texts, but we still include them in here. We have nothing to hide from you. And so right here, there's no reason to get it bent out of shape. Don't close it up. Let's leave. Get to the... Get to the game early. No, no, no. It's okay. What, the, t- what the, the guys that know more than I do have said, and for a long time they've said this, probably not in the original. We're just going to show you it, but bracket it. And so here we have, we've dealt with the min- missing verse. Now I need to deal with this menacing voice, this one Paul. He's an infector. He's a plague. You ever said that about somebody? When somebody, certain people walk into the room, they're infectious. You just, you, this is not the positive use of it that they're using with Paul. They're saying he's a plague. He, he goes and he infects in the wrong way. He's an agitator. He's a rebel. He's stirring up the waters. He's a ringleader. He's organizing this rebellion, and he's a blasphemer. We even, he even tried to profane the temple. And I started thinking about that. Paul was a blasphemer. He, he was a persecutor. He was a, a violent opponent. But that was against Jesus. And now he's on the right team. And so here he is giving his defense, and Tertullus brings his case against him. By examining him yourself, 
you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And in nine, knowing that there can't just be one witness, they bring in a whole gaggle of people. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. With two or three witnesses, they present their case. And so Paul lived in such a way, spoke in such a way, that people were bringing cases against him. It's as if long before Peter wrote, Paul had an answer to those who were asking for the hope. And often he did give the hope to those who were willing to listen. And here some are trying to stop his mission. That was normal life for Paul. And so we can often wonder if we're reading the book of Acts, is this normal life for us? What does it look like? Are we supposed to be on trial? Let me give you the balance here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, we are to aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs and to work with our hands as we've been instructed, verse 12, so that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So there is a balance here that I would say the majority of your life, I even read an article this week uh, by Tim Challey. He says, I thank God for my boring life. And he just talked about basically these two verses. Life is pretty much the same for him. And, and that's true for most of us. This is where we live most of our life. But there may be times when, like Paul, we have to go um, formally on trial. That doesn't mean necessarily that in all the times that are more monotonous, more mundane, that we shouldn't be ready. And I often ask when I'm teaching on that 1 Peter 3.15, I ask it of myself first and foremost, and I'll ask it of you. Are, Are we ready when people ask us for the hope that is within us? Are they even asking why we have such a different hope? Or is our hope so much like theirs? What would we say when they ask? Here Paul gives his joyful apologetic, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, it's like he acknowledges Tertullus, he looks over to Paul, he nods, and Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation. So he doesn't quite butter up as much as Tertullus was doing. Watch what he says here. I cheerfully... I cheerfully make my defense. Not only was Paul ready to give his defense, he was glad to do so. And every time you read the Scriptures, if you're sensitive and led by the Holy Spirit, not every time, I'm just saying, the more you read the Scriptures, the more things God shows you things you may have missed the time before, and this is one of them. I had never caught the idea that Paul was cheerfully making his defense cheerfully making his defense. There is no need, brothers and sisters, for grumpy people for God. No need whatsoever. None. Jesus Christ in Luke 10, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It would seem that Jesus' life was marked by a certain joy. Paul was full of joy. God was joy, God is joyful, Luke 15. Each time our sinner repents, there is joy in heaven. We need to be a joyful people. No more grumpy people for God. No, doesn't work. Doesn't work out at Yetis. It doesn't work. I'm just, I'm so holy. I'm just so grumpy for Jesus. Let's not be grumpy for Jesus. We must be full of joy. Let me read you something from, from a book uh, that I just got. It's on my personal device here. It's called The Joy Project, a true story of inescapable happiness. Here's what he says. How much of your life is driven by a desire for joy? 
he's going to argue, well, all of it. We know we need joy like we need food and water. How we get joy is something of a mystery, and most of us are content to leave that mystery unsolved. We simply want to experience the joy we desire. Joy is real, but joy is also elusive. Just when we think we've got a handful of happiness, we watch it run through our fingers and vanish. Where does it go? For many of us, this quest for joy leads with terrible irony to despair. We pursue joy in materialism, and we get stuck in debt. We pursue joy in our children, and we gnaw ourselves with worry over their well-being. We pursue marital perfection and grumble when we find our spouse's fault. We aim for joy, and we find doubt. Is joy really so mysterious and circumstantial? Is joy poisoned? What if our desire for the ultimate joy is really just a curse? What if the promise for all satisfying joy is life's cruelest hoax? He goes on to say that joy is for real. And he says, what if all our focus on changing our personal patterns or trying to fix these things misses the much bigger point and more important point? To say it another way, what if joy goes deeper than the flimsy foundations of organized day planners, thinned out closets, freshly painted walls, or a perfectly followed gym routine? What if joy is not found at the end of a to-do list? What if joy is not governed by the personality assigned to us by the lottery of our genetic heritage? What if Aristotle, when he said my happiness depends on me, was fundamentally wrong? What if I told you, and this is key, this is good, catch this, What if I told you someone, someone else is more concerned for your joy than you could ever be? What if this person has been planning your joy since before you were born? Would you believe me or would you write me off as well-meaning but ignorant religious optimist? Do you really think that God's at work for your joy? Well, here you see Paul joyfully giving a defense for the faith. Folks, he can't do that if he's not living a life of joy. This is Paul the Apostle beaten, imprisoned, and he joyfully makes his defense. And so Paul continues, but I want to stop right there and ask you, are you full of joy? Are you a joyful person? There are certain people, I was talking to my wife this week, I said, that person, they're just, like for the most, most of life, they're just full of joy. And she said, you know what, you're right. And when, when she's not, you can see it in her eyes. Are you joyful? This is not really in the script, in my transcript, but I'm asking you, are you a joyful person? Do you rightly see the glory of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the coming together of his people, the church, and are you just joyful? Or have you let the world materialism, marital issues, physical issues, physical health, have you let the world define for you how joyful you're going to be? Think about it. And so Paul in verse 11 says this, you, Felix, can verify that is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Nowhere, Paul says, can you find me doing what they say I was doing. Remember, he had gone to the temple. Remember, this was Paul who held to his convictions, but is also willing to give his concessions. And when they got, he got back to Jerusalem, they said, hey, Paul, some people 
uh, don't think you're all things to all people. Would you do this? Would you take and get these, pay for these guys' haircuts, take them to the temple and do this for us? And he says, you bet. Paul, who held to his convictions when it came to the truth of the gospel, was willing to make concessions if others would be led towards it. And so in 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And then he goes, but this I confess to you. Here's what I want to say to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, watch this, I worship the God of of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He says, I'm an Old Testament guy. Don't, Don't call me one who's opposing the Jewish religion. I'm just showing you where the Jewish religion's supposed to lead. In fact, he says, having a hope in God, verse 15, which these men themselves accept. And here's where he summarizes that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. I hope in the same God that they hope in. I believe in the resurrection. I'm wondering if Paul had just read Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Both the just and the unjust will be raised to life. Paul was saying, I don't believe anything any different. I'm just, I'm showing you where that's supposed to lead. Verse 16, here's another convicting verse. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. That is one of the most convicting verses anyone can read. So I always take pains. Do you take pains, brothers and sisters, to have a clear conscience before God and man? I mean, this is, this is an idea that's throughout the scriptures. You see it in the life of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.26, where it says that little Samuel grew in favor between God and ma- with God and man. Jesus, as a child, increased in wisdom and stature and grew in favor with God and man. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, of an elder, moreover, we must not dwell... We must be well thought of by outsiders that we're to grow in favor with God and man. We have a clear conscience. The question is, do we take pains in this? And I can say yes. I can probably say for most of us in here, we take pains for this. But here's a key word here, an adverb. Do I always take pains? That's convicting. Do I always? Brothers and sisters, we live in a very culture, a very laid-back culture, And we must be all the more vigilant to stay committed and take pains to have a clear conscience between God and man. And now, after several years, I came. And so Paul goes into the detail of what I talked about earlier. I came, verse 17, to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And he concludes with this, verse 19. Yet some Jews from Asia, there they are again, the end of 18, beginning of 19. There's those Jews from Asia. And I thought about this. You and I may have people in our life, same people that are going to follow you and try to be a nuisance in your Christian life. You may not get away from them. If you were to go and trace, I think you could go back three or four chapters that some of the Jews from Asia, the Jews from Asia were always after Paul. Verse 19, he says, to those Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found 
when I stood before the council. They can't even come here and tell you what I've done wrong because I haven't done anything wrong. And they didn't even say it when they had their opportunity. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them. And so Paul says, I'll admit one thing. And he goes back to what he just talked about. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. And so Paul says, yeah, you want to know what, what's causing a stir? Is I am saying there was this Jewish one who came. His name is Jesus. And what I am saying is that he came and he lived a perfect life and he died and he has risen again. It is this Jesus that you should follow. It is not Caesar. It is not the Jewish high priest. It is this Jesus that you should follow. That's why I'm on trial today. And so Paul shows you, and I just summarize it for you here. Paul shows he was not disturbing the peace, as they had said. He was neither in violation of the law, as they had said, nor was he desecrating the temple, and thus his accusers have no proof. Now, don't look at the text. Don't look. Don't. I know some of you are eager, like, man, here's Paul. He's giving a defense. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Here it comes. This is Billy Graham. This is, this is Greg Laurie. This is Louis Palau. Big, massive conversion. Big tent revival. Here we go. Verse 22. But Felix, having rather an accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? You go and you stand up. Here's this council accusing you. You stand up for the faith and Felix puts them off. And they will put you off. Saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. And then he gave orders in verse 23 to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but to have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so we probably see this is where Luke checks in on him. This is where you get some of Paul's prison uh, comments that he has in the letters throughout the New Testament. Verse 24, after some days, Felix, so he puts him off in the front of the crowd, but Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Interesting. Let me read you a, just a commentary um, on who she is and why, why would he come back with his wife who is Jewish. Drusilla, who had previously been married, was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa and the sister of Herod Agrippa II. Josephus, who was around at the time and records this in Jewish history, records that Felix wooed Drusilla away from her former husband, thus calling, causing her to transgress the laws of her forefathers through adultery. Although the Herods were not fully Jewish, they sought to maintain a facade of Jewishness. And given the aggressive opposition of Agrippa I to Christianity in Acts 12, it's fascinating to see both his daughter and son engaging with Paul and is teaching more openly in Acts 24 and 26. Interesting. So here are people who had been aggressive against the faith, but they're starting to be convicted. And so they want to talk to Paul privately. A little Bible study. Verse 25. And when he, that's Paul, reasoned, what did he reason about? Righteousness, self-control. Think Drusilla needed to hear about righteousness and self-control. Do you think Felix needed to hear about this? And that there is judgment coming. How often do we talk to our non-Christian friends that we, we avoid that issue of the coming judgment? Because if I talk to them about that H-E-L-L stuff, that'll drive them away. Not Paul. He talked about very practical issues, and he talked about the sticky issues. Where did that leave Felix? 
Felix was alarmed. Literally, you're reading through the text and you're supposed to go, here he is. He's, he pauses and he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And so here he is convicted by what Paul's teaching, but he's still unconvinced. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. He was under the impression that Paul, though he was in prison, had freedoms, he was probably getting some monies and his needs met, and so he would just continue to ask Paul to come in and visit, and maybe Paul would give him a bribe. Not so. In verse 27, for two years, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. Two years. A lot's happened in two years here in the valley. New people have come to Eagle Bible Church. A lot has happened in two years. And here's Paul for two years staying faithful. And so what can you and I uh, draw from these verses? Number one, here are your theological principles. God's people may, maybe not always, face dangerous enemies. You may face dangerous enemies, but I assure you, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, it's not up there, indeed, indeed. This is Paul later on writing to Timothy. This is one of his last letters, if not the last one. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. I'm looking at a lot of faces. I'm looking at men and women who desire, I, I see it, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Trust me when I say this, because it's not I who say it, I just read it. You will be persecuted. I will be persecuted. It may look different. I know of some people who've come from different parts of the world, and the persecution they faced was far different than what we face. But we may face it. And all the more, as our, quote, Christian nation and that idea of Christianity gets marginalized. But like Russell Moore has said, and I agree, let the Bible Belt die. Let it die and let the true believers rise up. Weed out those who are just Christians in name only. I attend church because, you know, I make a few connections, probably get a few business deals. That's not what Christianity is about. And number two, God's people should defend the faith. We are all called to it. Having set apart Jesus Christ in your heart is holy. Always be ready. All, Paul was always ready, always taking pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. Peter says, always be ready. Are we ready, brothers and sisters? Are we ready? If not, why not? Get ready. Get ready. We, we don't need to go through life wondering, well, if somebody asks me, I'm not really going to know how to give them an answer. Be prepared. That's what the Bible says. Be prepared to give a joyful and courageous, competent, and, and to do it with integrity. Uh, so here, here's how to take those principles and apply them to your life. Number one, in the application to us, speak of Jesus joyfully. Again, no more grumpy people for God. And I'm talking to myself. I don't want to be the grump. Incompetently, no, be ready. No 
about the person of Jesus and his resurrection and live with integrity and courage. And so you may be saying, well, how do I do this? Because it can get so confusing. Somebody can come at me and talk about the age of the earth or creation evolution. I'm not a scientist. I'm not asking you to... There are a few people in here. They're scientists and they can can talk about that. I'm not asking you and I. You and I, we're average Joes. We're not scientists. Well, what if they ask me about evil and the concept of evil? That's one you're going to need to be prepared with. Here's where I would begin with anybody. I wish I would have done this to a, to a, what's that? Jehovah's Witness. Hi, if, if I ever get the chance, I'm going to do this again. They come in and they come full throttle. Oh, I see you're a religious man. Oh. I'd say, okay, man, here's my question. What do you believe? Before you start accusing all the all these classical evidential presuppositional apologetics, we'll be here in a minute. But let me ask you a personal question: What do you believe? Do you believe in the afterlife? I mean, what, do, what do, when it comes to religious things, what what do you believe? And then here's the follow-up question: How do you know? What do you believe, and how do you know? Because I guarantee you. The answer is going to be one of two things. And this is you're, you're walking them down a path. You're not trying to entrap them, but you're, you're shrewdly guiding them down the path to good logic in the scriptures. You, you believe what you believe by what you've learned from other people or what you've read somewhere. Used to be, we used to, we used to say when you read it in, in books, for some of you young people, this is called a book. It has a spine, a cover. Sometimes it comes with a dust jacket, is what they call it. This is a book. But these days, it's the people you've learned something from and what you've read, whether you've read it in a book, online, that's it. Think about it. I mean, it's, I'm, a, I'm a brilliant apologist, right? The people you've learned from or where you've read it somewhere. Because the people you learn from, where did they learn it from? The people they learned it from or they read it in a book. What do you believe and how do you know what you believe? You just you're listening, you got a couple, you got a wire if you're a lady, you got a wired yeti mama, if you're a guy, you got an almond joy, I don't know. You're just sipping it, okay? And then you say, Well, tell me what you believe about Jesus. Because I assure you, everybody'll talk all over the board about God and spiritual when you talk about Jesus, you're gonna get one of two responses. You're gonna just get one of two. You won't get a lot. Like God, you can go, well, she is this. And, you, you know, it's like reading, you hear people talk like reading a shack. You're like, no, 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 no. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. You're going to get one of two. He is a fairy guy that floated around, as you see written in this paper sometimes. Or, oh, he's a, he's a good dude. He's a, he was a nice guy. He was a prophet. He seemed to do a lot of good on earth. But the majority of people are going to say that. Well, tell me what you believe about Jesus. Well, yeah, I I've heard he was a good guy, did a lot of good things. Some people call him a prophet. And then your follow-up question, how do you know that? From the people that you've taught you or the books you've read. And so you're just, you're, you're gently, shrewdly guiding them down to, when it comes down to it, you're trusting in the people who have taught you who, let's just go bottom line here. They've learned it from a book. Period. 
end of story. They've learned their history, whether they believe in creation or evolution, from Charles Darwin, who put it in a book. And so all we need to do is go, I too have learned what I've learned from a book. Now here's the homework I give to you. You better know how to defend the book. One book, 66 books within it, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, comprised by more than 40 authors over 1,500 years. But aren't there discrepancies? You say, no, there's no... It depends on the... This is where there's an art and science to this. The art is you got to gauge the situation. Well, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. Show me. Because they can't. And if they can't, be ready. you got to be ready. Although, I'll take you to Acts 24, verse 6 and 8. See, there's no 7. Oh, my friend, let me tell you about textual criticism. And you just walk them through that. But you're, what you're doing is you're gently, shrewdly walking them. You believe what you believe because you've been taught it somewhere in a book. It comes down to what book you're believing for the rest of your life. Are you going to believe on the origin of a species or are you going to believe the logic of a creator creating the world? Are you going to believe what you read about Jesus in, from some guy who, who lived in the 90s and played video games, or are you going to go read it from the guys that walked with him? You believe what you believe because you read it in a book. And do this with joy. Do it with a sm- The greatest apologetics, I really believe, and I'll end with this, is when you and I, brothers and sisters, share our faith with a smile on our face. And if we get stumped, just say, that's a great question. If you're willing to come back and meet with me next week, I'll go research it. And be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't know, because here's the beauty. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me and how eloquent we are. It depends on God, who is sovereign over all things, working through the power of His Word and the power of the Spirit in somebody's heart. You and I are just guiding them, but I think the best questions are asking, who is Jesus and how do you know?